of college folks and college-looking folks, even though a lot of us uh, are graduated and have been for a while. Uh, it's always a surprise uh, for people to learn that I'm in my mid-30s. I know I do look young. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, I have young-looking parents, so, you know, that's uh, where I got that from. Um, we have really made it a priority to try to kind of rethink vocation and rethink uh, jobs and all of that stuff. Because uh, one of the things that we found as, you know, in doing ministry for a while is a lot of focused people or college people get out of, into the working world and then their life just sort of hits a wall. It's kind of like, okay, what is my life for now? Um, and in part, I think, I was talking to Cameron about this the other day and it kind of dawned on me. I think in part what's going on is that we go through so many stages when we're young, like transitions, that we finally get to that adult stage, which seems like a really long period of time. And it's kind of like, well, what's the next transition? What's the next thing I'm going to do? And maybe the lack of even having that in mind makes us a little stressed out. Whereas maybe, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you didn't really have those kinds of transitions. You had children, and then you had adults. And adults, you know, came of age somewhere in their teenage years, got married, and then they just were adults. So as long as they could remember, that's sort of what they did. There was no lost childhood or this sort of way of trying to recreate our childhood like a lot of us do. Um, but for whatever the reason is, a lot of us get out of college and then our, we, if we're not careful, we think our life just sort of stops. Uh, a lot of movies have this theme, you know, that your best years were when you were young and all of this other kind of stuff. And so um, as a church, one of our real strategies has been to try to kind of figure out what does it mean to really appreciate your work and understand your work in a climate in particularly where work doesn't seem to give us a lot of significance. It doesn't communicate to us a whole lot of who we are, or at least not good thoughts about who we are. And so I want to kind of um, address a few things today, but certainly we'll talk more about this in our job seminar um, later today. And um, I'm going to start off just trying to kind of define a couple words for you. A lot of this you know, material is not my own. It's drawn from at least five or six sources, but two really important sources are one, those of you who are CORFAs this year, or small group leaders, in your CORFA packet, you have a really great article called Refocused Vocation. Any of you have read that or remember reading it? No? CORFAs are like, yeah, do you know how many things are in my CORFA packet? Like, have I read that? Are you kidding me? It's like this big. Um, well, it's a great article, and it has, it's, it's really gives a great history. Our small group, uh, the uh, adult small group, went through it this last week, and it led to a lot of really great conversation and fights, which is always fun in our small group. Um, and it, it was just great. I mean, it was really a, a conversation starter. And so I'd encourage you, for those of you who are pretty close to graduating or thinking about jobs, to read this article, which you already have. If not, you can get on Christianity Today uh, and look up Refocused Vocation. And it's just uh, kind of gives a history of how we've changed our thinking on uh, job and calling and all that. The other source is from a longer talk that uh, it wasn't received so well. We have a leadership team here. We call them chulas, which I'm not even sure what that means in Spanish. So hopefully nothing <laughs> too offensive. Um, some of that you're looking like, eh, not a good, not a good name. Um, and it was like a four-hour seminar by Gordon Fee, who writes that How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth book on vocation and calling. And nobody really liked it. Um, I loved it. Leslie loved it. But, you know, we're nerds and way more spiritual than the rest of that group. So <laughs> makes sense that we would really enjoy it. Um, no, it's hard. It's, it's kind of difficult to make your way through. And so um, I'm going to try my best to summarize a few of those ideas for you. And uh, we'll uh, move on. So there is absolutely no word in the scripture that even comes close to our word of vocation or job. 
It just doesn't exist. It's a weird and interesting term because a lot of Christians talk about it and use it as if it's a biblical term. But vocation does not exist. And the term itself, even in close proximity, there are no terms other uh, that, that even come close to the idea of vocation. Instead, in its place, and we often use these terms together, is a term called calling. In the Hebrew, it's Korah, which is where we learned this last week. Uh, Islam gets the Quran, which is just, it means a lot of different things, which I'll explain in a moment. And then in the Greek, Kaleo. It doesn't matter what are you guys writing those words down. If you're ever going to go back, you're going to try to like impress people by you know, telling them. Who cares? Um, the word is calling. Okay, and now we use this term in some pretty narrow ways today, particularly when we say things like God called us to do this, um, which is okay, or maybe worse and more narrow that you have a calling into ministry that, you know, the ministerial job or the priesthood, uh, whatever that is, is some kind of direct calling in almost like a, a maximum sanctified job. All right. The scripture really doesn't use that term like that at all. And in fact, I think what's so cool about this term is like so many other Christian terms, folks just took a term that was popularly understood in their society and added a new spiritual meaning to it. Uh, And I love this idea because one of the biggest problems we have in Christianity today is we have way too many spiritual words that like lack any kind of rigorous meaning. And we don't do a very good job on engaging our own culture and our own language to make sense of these really tough ideas that we have in the Bible. Um, So we just sort of use words like sanctification and calling and all these other words that are really kind of become useless. They have no meanings. They're so vague that nobody really understands what they, they mean. But if you use it in a conversation, people just accept whatever it is that you know, their interpretation of what you're saying is. So we don't really get on the same page with a lot of this language. I almost thought about doing an activity, and I don't know if I want to, because it's one of those vague activities that in my mind sounds like a really great activity. You guys know what I'm talking about. But that if people are like, yeah. But maybe it would be really hard to answer, okay? So let me, let me just ask you if you want to do this activity. If you do, I'll let you do it like on your own real quick. If not, then we don't have to do it. But I wanted to think of a word a Christian word that we use that virtually has no meaning anymore or that the meaning is so broad that uh, it ceases to mean much at all. Uh, And now you've got to come up with a word that we actually use in our society often that has a narrow meaning to substitute for that word. Is that too hard of an assignment? Let's do it. Everyone like, yeah, yeah. That's too hard. Let's do it. let me give you two examples, okay? Uh, um, Rick Watts, who's one of the guys from the Regent College that we like to listen to every now and again, he says, you know, you can't use this term holiness much anymore um, because no one really has a good sense of what it means. He says the same thing about love. What he talks about when he talks about holiness is people keeping and not like you like collect people. Um, but you take care of people and you have a responsibility like a shepherd to really take care of people. That's what holiness is really about. We tend to make holiness about non-relational things, about purity, and about you know, doing all these things that have really nothing to do with our human-human relationships and, and uh, interactions. And yet when God talks about being a holy God, uh, in part he's talking about being separated, and part of that separation from us is that he really loves people unconditionally. And that if we miss that in our understanding of holiness, we've missed it completely. Um, I talked to someone just this last week that uses the word care for instead of love. Because love, what does that even mean? Oh my gosh, you know? 
I was uh, hanging out with Noah the other day, Noah Walton, which some of you know, some of you don't. And I love, he, he talks about when, you know, um, communicating respect for people, he uses the term, I really admire them. It feels like that really communicates that there's kind of a deep respect um, for somebody. So there's like all kinds of real interesting ones we could do. Yes, activity or no? How many of you really want to do this activity? Okay, then do it on your own time. <laughs> because that's like one-fifth of all of you. So we won't do that. But I say all that to say that there are so many words like this in the Greek and Hebrew scriptures. Uh, that God has seen fit to speak into the culture that he's entering into and change the language to meet their understandings and expectations. And that's really a lot of what Jesus did. It's a lot of what Paul did in his current culture. And there's sort of a side lesson for us here that has nothing to do with work and vocation. And that is to make sure that we're tailoring our language to the current culture we're in. That we're allowing ourselves to speak truth in ways that our culture really understands and can narrow down a definition for and not just expecting them to understand our language. Because what we're doing when we do that is we're keeping the gospel from people. And we're just keeping it as sort of like a little secret that we all have, you know? Uh, no one else can know. You've know, you got to have some information. There's a term for that. It's called jargon. And if you've ever been around people who like to use jargon, I am one of those people. It's terrible because you have no idea what they're talking about, right? If ever I've helped you work, or if I worked on one of your cars and I use all this jargon about your car and you're thinking, oh, what is he saying? It's terrible. I feel like such an idiot. Well, I'm doing that intentionally to make you feel like an idiot. <laughs> and I make myself feel really good about the jargon that I don't know. We, all of us have jargon, guys. We've got some specialty knowledge in some field or some hobby and we use jargon to try to separate ourselves from other people to show how smart we are. Um, this is the natural thing we do. We cannot do that with the gospel. Because what, well, what that means is that we naturally think of the gospel as being something only a few people can secretly be involved in. Which is really counter to the message of the gospel that Jesus gives us. So this term calling, okay? Uh, really an interesting term. It has a lot of different definitions in the scripture. I'm going to give a couple of you scriptures so you can read examples of this. This is just from a few um, chapters in Matthew. I found like six just in um, a few verses, uh, a few chapters of Matthew. So just raise your hand if you don't mind reading the scripture. Um, yep, here we go. Raise your hand. Yeah, rather do Matthew four twenty one. Um, yep, yeah, we'll do uh, Matthew five nine, uh, five nineteen or seventy nine. Who knows? Just let's see what happens. Um, okay. Let's do nineteen. Seventy nine just sounds big, right? Yeah. It sounds a little big. Yeah. <laughs> Cody, do twenty two three or do nine thirteen? Matthew nine thirteen. Uh, yeah, uh, 22, 3 and 23, 7. All right? What was mine, Brad? Uh, 579. Just kidding, 519. <laughs> but if there's a 79, just go ahead and read that too so that we can know. Because who knows, you know? It might be valuable. Um, in a second, I'll have you guys reading those. So, this word means all kinds of cool stuff. It could mean invitation, it could mean being summoned, it could mean being named, it could mean being given a duty. But here's the most common context it's used in. You got some rich dude who's in charge of a house. He's got a whole lot of servants, some slaves, some indentured servants, some just his wife and kids. And he's in this major meeting place where everyone kind of comes to do family business. If you've ever watched, and I use this example so much because I love this show, but I haven't watched it in a while. Um, oh, it's the wire. No, it's not the wire. <laughs> 
How am I possibly going to use an example from The Wire on that? Uh, no, it's not West Wing. What's the show with the rich, British, maybe or English? Downtown Abbey. Yeah, Downtown Abbey. Not Downtown Abbey, okay? <laughs> Texas people. Downtown Abbey. Um, so, the master of the house calls people into his presence. Now, this, this, this is usually used in a positive term, although it could have negative connotations. But, number one, there's some honor in being called into the presence of the patron of the house. Okay? He's the big dude. He's the one. I, I don't know how to give this an example in our own culture. Maybe if it's like a celebrity calls you into their presence. I don't even know, man. Someone you really respect and, and admire calls you into their presence. You know, you know, some of you are thinking in your mind, like, that wouldn't be a big deal. Have you ever seen a movie star? You just get weird, okay? <laughs> if you're even near one, or I have this really funny story about how when I was in, Santa, uh, in Hollywood, um, I was probably like 19, we pull up in this old beat-up truck, and we pull up to an intersection, and next to us in a brand-new Porsche is Bruce Willis. And I'm, like, closest to the driver, the passenger seat. And so I'm like... <laughs> And I look over, and I'm just like, you're a great actor, man. <laughs> and he just looks at me, he's like, thanks. <laughs> and that was the time I met him in his But you get weird. I don't know. Many of you probably get a little weird when you meet someone who, you know, is kind of famous. Well, that's probably the kind of feeling a lot of these folks would have with the patron of their household. It was just weird. I mean, they knew how much power this person had. They knew how much influence. And so to be called this presence was an honorable thing. All right? And now, certainly it was a dutiful thing. It's not like they chose to go or not, okay? Um, but you got to remember, in, in ancient times, you know, jobs and households and families weren't separated. You know, your family and the things that you did. I mean, even in the 19th century, guys, most of our jobs were in the household. We did things. There was this crazy statistic that I'm going to tell you, and I've told so many people this already, I'm just going to say it again, that Gordon Fee mentions that in 1885, 85% of all products that people consumed and made were made in the household. Meaning that all the stuff you're wearing, like 85% of the stuff you wear and consume today would have been made by you and your family. Just think about that. I mean, we would all die so quickly. Uh, and working class and average middle class America, we would be eating, you know, mac and cheese all day, uh, every day, and making clothes out of, like, towels and, you know, I don't know. Okay. Um, by 1915, this is how powerful the Industrial Revolution was, 30 years less than 15% of products were made and consumed in the home. I mean, in a 30-year time period, that, that just, our whole society changed, and we brought jobs out of the household and into the workplace, okay? So that's a pretty different, you know, shift in our own society and our thinking. But traditionally speaking, most people historically have read these biblical commands and thought of them in the context of, I'm in a household with a household head, and he's in charge, and he's the one that kind of determines this. And being called into his presence is being called into the presence of the master, the person who really pretty much dictates the job that I do, my level of status, and all these different things. Okay? So this is the exact same word that's picked up in the New Testament. Uh, again, so weird, actually, to think about how we use this term now to communicate that someone has an honorable calling into the ministry, Yet in the Bible, it's quite the opposite. It's that someone who's been kind of a, in a dishonorable position is all of a sudden called into the honorable presence of the person you know, who's in charge of the household, the patron. Well, you've got to think about how crazy this idea was for Christians. People who were slaves, people who were um, you know, women, kids, the idea that they were now called by God himself into his presence... 
and been given a duty or a job was, was amazing. In fact, so amazing that in, the, in 1 Corinthians, particularly in the uh, chapter 6 and 7, some of these people are struggling with this idea. They're like, okay, wait a second. We're equal status all of a sudden with the patrons. So what does that mean? Should we like break free of our job? Should we force this issue? And there was a lot of conflict, particularly in the, the Corinthian church, over this issue. All right? But i just give you a little bit of background. Maybe that was way too much background. Uh, so a quick sampling of how this word is used and taken on by Jesus himself. Go for it. Matthew 4.21. Right. Yeah, read it. That's it, man. Called them. All right. Sweet. 5-9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, keep going. Let's just see if there's any more there. I forgot to write, like, the latter end of these passages. No, you're good. Yeah, we'll um, see. Blessed are those who are persecuted. No, no, no. That's going to be it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of, one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's just see what happens. Keep going. Or I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses... Nah, nah, that's not going to work. <laughs> All right, 9.13. <laughs> I don't know what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's definitely got to have some more. No? no? Okay. Then, then John's disciples came and asked him... Okay, okay, yeah, you're right, right. 22 and 3. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Oh, keep going, man. This one's good. Because invitation there is the exact same word for called. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat and cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding table. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Oh, this is getting dark. Let's keep going. Let's see what happens. Then he said to his servants, The way you make is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the street and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. The wedding hall was filled with guests. All right, that's good. Yeah, same same word here, guys. That's a cool one. Uh, 23.7 will be the last one. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Keep going. Okay. Uh, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. That's it. So a wide variety of different passages where this scripture is used. Uh, or where this, this term of calling is, uh, is used. So what are the implications today? Because I, I, you know, I can go on and on on this, but I just want to give you a couple ideas and then uh, sort of move on just so that you can kind of think about this. Uh, so I have two ideas for you. The first one is uh, that uh, you know, this idea of a higher calling uh, really applies to everyone uh, everywhere who's a part of God's kingdom. Um, that the idea that God has called us into an honorable position with him, but also a position that connotes some kind of duty, um, and, uh, you know, because one of the other problems, the, the, um, particularly the, um, 
Colossian church had with this idea of calling is they were totally cool with the idea of being elevated in status uh, to, you know, uh, God, right? I mean, that was just great. To be called by the patron God was awesome. Problem was they weren't such a big fan uh, with scriptures where God was talking about how just like he had to suffer and die, they were also going to be called to suffer and die. Um, Not as big a fan because that was really shameful, right? And so what you have in this calling scripture or, or, or word is such a huge paradox. Because at one, on one hand, you have this idea that God has called us to being in his presence and to an honorable position. But you also have this idea that he's called us to the same path that he's headed down. Which is a path of crucifixion and is in no way honorable. As a society, American society in particular, we're not so shame-based. So this maybe not, you know, doesn't hurt us as much. When you're in a society where honor and duty matter greatly, the idea of being shamed by the crucifixion was a lot harder than people could handle. Um, and this is one of the real separating, I think, points in this, this term calling uh, that, that really a lot of people struggle with. So a higher calling applies to everyone and, uh, and, and, and everyone everywhere. Uh, it's not about the called. It's about the caller. And this is a really a fundamental change in the way we think about our work. Too many of us, we define our worth, our identity, our skills by the kind of degree or job that we intend on having. We're taught from a pretty early age that, you know, we have great choice in this matter. And so what we choose will ultimately express who we are. But also in the kind of capabilities that we have, we'll express to people how much of an identity we have, how successful we are, how important we are. Our job often says a lot about who we are. But the idea of calling completely separates those ideas and turns them on their head. That the idea isn't so much about what you've been called to do, although in terms of vocation, although that's important, and hopefully your vocation matches up with your skill set and your capabilities, let's be honest though, most people throughout the ages, their job had nothing to do with their capabilities or their skill sets. They were placed in a job by society, and even to a large degree in our own society, a lot of what we will end up choosing in our job is somewhat dictated by a lot of factors outside of our control. Things like our social class and our gender and uh, our perception in our society of hardworking and being efficient and all these other things. So yeah, sure, we've got some choice in it. But we share at least some in common with people throughout the ages who've largely been doing jobs that they did not want to do. The only difference is, rather than sort of seeing their job as an expression of their identity, they more saw their ability to do their job and their duty in their job as an expression of their identity. We see the job itself often in our society as an expression of our value and our self-worth. Well, this is the opposite way of thinking about it from the scriptural perspective. Who cares what your vocation is? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7. Becoming a Christian, you don't need to change that. I mean, if you can, great. But in order to be a true disciple, you don't have to go change what job you're in, Paul says. You don't have to go change the place of life you're in. God's calling is just for you wherever you are in whatever you're doing. Now, I'd make a caveat there and say probably there are some jobs that aren't such great jobs. But guys, Joseph was leading the world's hyperpower, superpower at the time, uh, security forces. You don't think he had a role in doing some questionable work? 
I mean, he was in charge of this household, of this guy that was, you know, pretty much well-known in the security world. Now, he may have been a good guy and a guy of faith, but at the same time, he was in a job that probably most of us wouldn't have thought of as being a pretty good job. And he was forced into it, sure. But I think what what this idea of calling tells us is that no matter what we're doing, wherever we are, God has a higher calling on us that, that ultimately makes our job worthwhile. It completes it. In a society where we can't find much meaning in our job, particularly spiritual meaning in our job, we just sort of work, and we work out of necessity, and we work out of a sense of practicality, and our jobs teach us these really narrow skills, but don't teach us a lot about what the significance of those skills are, what the significance of the job we're doing. Many of us as Americans struggle with the significance of our work. And so we do all kinds of things instead to try to legitimize our job. Things that don't recognize the importance of God's calling on our job. So a couple ideas that I have, I think, things that we do in response to this. Okay? Number one is we try to use standards for other jobs in our jobs. One of the ones I see a lot for people who've been involved in ministry is, and we had a great conversation about this Tuesday, is your idea of being in a good job, you're using the same standard that a minister would use in their job. How many people am I studying with? How many relationships am I building? Well, those are great goals, and certainly in the sense that they fit into a higher calling about really loving people, great. But if you're just using the standard that a minister would use for the success of their job, which is even arguable they shouldn't be using, then you fail to see how God's calling has really completed the job that you're in. That the work itself becomes meaningful. And instead, you've just supplanted uh, a whole other set of rules and um, success and measurement standards on your job. That's not a good thing. I'm going to explain this a little bit more in just a second. Um, this is going to be a terrible analogy, but I'm just going to use it. Uh, so, like, a handful of you. This is jargon, okay? In the social sciences, there are two kinds of research. Well, there are a lot of kinds of research, but just generally speaking, there's qualitative and quantitative. How many of you know qualitative and quantitative? Yay! Great, cool. Qualitative is more or less about people. I'm just going to make it like that. If you're interviewing people, talking to them, figuring out their experiences. Quantitative data is all about numbers. And there's been fights for years between these two fields of study. Okay? My master's program was all about quantitative data. Man, They talked bad about anybody who did qualitative data. And then I got into a PhD program that was all about qualitative data and taught me a lot that I didn't know about quantitative data. But one of the things that happened pretty early on is qualitative folks began using the jargon and language that quantitative folks tried to use. And so qualitative uh, researchers had this sort of identity crisis. They were trying to do qualitative research, but they were living according to the standards of the quantitative folks. So they were using all of their language, and they weren't really doing and appreciating the unique advantages of being able to do qualitative research, where you can really sit across from someone and talk to them and understand how their world works, and they're not just another statistic or figure. And that's the best example I can use of this tendency we have in our jobs to try to come up with a standard from another job system or maybe ministry, apply it to our work, and then expect that if it doesn't meet that criteria, it's probably not such a great job. This is what a lot of us have done when we've looked at ministry positions as somehow being more, uh, you know, better positions or, you know, more God-approved or naturally more spiritually um, uh, capable positions, and that is a wrong way of looking at ministry. 
Paul certainly didn't believe that as he continued to keep his side job and in fact very rarely let churches provide him with money. And so I think we have a real issue with that, guys. And this might just be our church issue because we have so many people involved in ministry. But we have got to take that out of our way of thinking. It is not helpful when it comes to really ministering to people in the workplace. We cannot see people who don't choose to go into ministry as second-class citizens. If anything, we should consider the people who've chosen to go into ministry as second-class citizens. Uh, I think that would be a more scriptural way of looking at it. Because certainly Paul and other ministers saw themselves in that way. And it's very easy for us in our society to honor those people in those those privileged positions. And I think that gets us into a lot of uh, dangerous situations. I watched a movie last night, which I was told myself I wasn't going to mention because it was just such a painful movie. But um, I can't help but, but use this as an absolutely extreme example of what happens when this kind of thinking happens. I watched Spotlight last night. Those of you who have seen Spotlight, very sensitive uh, topic, very challenging movie. But this is an example of when this becomes extreme. When we turn an eye to people who are ministers and see them as being holier than other people. And this is certainly not a Catholic church issue. This is a church issue in the institution of church. And see ministers as somehow being holier than or better than or more called by God than the rest of us. We have a very narrow view of how God can work in the world. In fact, the majority of people throughout the ages who've done the things that God has wanted them to do have been, not been ministers. Throughout the scripture, the priests themselves were some of the worst of the bunch. <laughs> they were some of the most corrupt. Right? Right? And so we've got to get outside of this idea and this way of thinking, I think. So let me give you kind of three ideas within this higher calling that applies to everyone. If calling is ultimately not about the uh, person being called and about the kind of job that they're in, it's actually about the caller himself, then I think it's very important that we recognize the importance of what God has called us to be. What is this higher calling that he's given us? Okay, Number one, he wants this world redeemed for everyone. And uh, specifically for the disadvantaged people in our societies to know him. And I can't figure out another way of phrasing that from the prophets. He wants this world redeemed. He's using the people of God, wherever they are, whether they're in churches or not, the remnant to redeem the world. And by redeem, that's another one of those weird words, isn't it? Uh, To make the earth a better place according to his standards, according to his original standards. That's a longer way of putting it and doesn't sound near as good. Uh, But that's what I'm going to go with. So specifically for the disadvantage, if you want to somewhere in that to kind of look up, John 640 would be a great place to kind of see that uh, in part. Number two, he wants the world cared for and for people to live full lives, even though that's going to be tough in this age. So he wants the world to be cared for, to be taken care of, and for people to really live full lives. I know some of this kind of seems a little maybe wishy-washy and like positive energy type preaching. It's not. These are just the messages that God gives throughout the scripture in terms of his purpose for the world we live in. And if we don't believe them and understand them, it's for lack of studying the scripture uh, that, you know, that we've gotten this sort of really narrow view of the world. So he wants this world redeemed. Uh, and, uh, you know, he wants people to know him, particularly the disadvantaged. He wants the world cared for and people to have full lives, even though this will be tough in this age. John 10.10, if you want a scripture reference for that one. Oh, good. Um, And then the last one is he wants us to lay down our lives for others. John 15.13. 
Which might seem contrary to the one right before that, about living our lives to the fullest. But, you know, our God is a God of paradoxes often, so you're going to have to figure that one out on your own. <laughs> so, he gives us the, that higher calling in the world. Wants the world redeemed and for people uh, specifically who are disadvantaged to know him. Wants the world cared for and people to really live full lives. Lives that are meaningful. Um, lives that, uh, you know, that have time to, to appreciate the things that we've been given. And he wants us to lay down our lives for others. Um, so, we've been called to this higher calling. What does that mean? That's really wonderful and sounds amazing and blah, blah, blah. Point two and implications today. Uh, our, and I've already mentioned this, but I just want to spell it out for you. Our vocation is completed by our calling. It's not the other way around. Uh, our vocation doesn't complete our calling. The type of job that we have doesn't give us any advantage or disadvantage in accomplishing God's calling. The calling itself completes any vocation that we're in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can. Vocation is completed by calling, not the other way around. Our calling isn't completed by the vocation we choose. There aren't approved and non-approved jobs that we ought to go into so that we can truly do ministry. That's not it. God's calling is so much bigger than that. And when you think like that, you've automatically separated certain jobs and industries from God being able to work in. Are you crazy? Don't do that. He's sovereign. He has the ability to do that. A lot of you, your biggest issue isn't so much that you're in a job that you don't necessarily like. It's that, I mean, you probably are, but you're in a, a job and you think of your job as being a temporary place. You're going to move on to some bigger and better and more wonderful thing along the way. And are you going to have good and bad jobs in your life? For someone who's had over 20 jobs in my life, I will guarantee you you're going to have some bad and some good jobs. The problem is we ought not think like that. Because the bad and good jobs don't mean much at all when it comes to God's calling wherever we are. Yeah? Um, so you're talking about words that are kind of like thrown around, kind of like um, that word. Um, you were just talking about words earlier that are yeah. like just thrown around and we don't really know what they mean, but jargon. Um, so like... When you say calling, what do you mean by that? So, um, I think there's a long list of different things that, that, that relate back to calling. But the three that I already kind of gave you is, number one, that he wants the world redeemed. And for people particularly who are disadvantaged to know him, wants the world cared for and be able to live really full lives. Uh, and he wants us to lay down our lives for others. That's at least three. What I'm saying is that God calls us into his presence and gives us this, this uh, mission in the world. A duty, a responsibility, a purpose, whatever other words you want to kind of put in there. Okay. That it's very easy for us Christians, but particularly Americans, for to live our jobs without much purpose. Our purpose comes down to the, the necessity of, well, I need food, I need money. So that's what my, the importance of my job is. Plenty of us have had that attitude before. Well, I hate my job, but at least I make money so I can provide for the church. As if the church is the only place that, where ministry can happen. That's a cr- crazy bad idea. I mean, Paul would say, if you can get into another job and it's a better job, great, go for it. Wonderful. But if your idea about how great and good your work is is contingent upon the circumstances of your job, you've missed the calling idea completely. The idea is that God has and throughout the ages. Can you possibly think of being a servant or a slave in someone's household with no choice, with a job that's probably beneath you in many ways in terms of your skills and your personality type? And God's saying to those people, your job is important because of the calling that I've given you. Not because there's anything inherently wonderful about being a slave or a servant. 
And don't hear me saying this is, you know, because many Christians have used this over the years to approve of slavery and those kinds of things. Absolutely not. Paul himself, very clearly, if you can be free, be free. Because certainly that's a better way of living life. But within the stage you're in, whether that means you have a transitionary job in your, you know, 18 or 19, wherever you're at, God's calling completes the vocation. And when you get later on into a job that you love and it's wonderful, it's going to be really hard for many of you to find calling in that. Because you're going to equate, equate calling with the circumstance of your job. Well, my job's great, so therefore, you know, that's what I'm really called is just to enjoy my job. I don't think so. You may have a harder time recognizing your calling than people who at least have challenging jobs. And I'll get into that in just a moment. So, vocation is completed by our calling. It's not the other way around. Go to 1 Corinthians 7.17 and look through that whole section there. Because he's talking a lot about this calling. And remember, he's going to talk a lot about family in this passage. But back then, you couldn't possibly separate family from calling. Some have argued this whole weird passage where, where Paul talks about you know, submitting to your husband and things like that has to do with submitting to the patron of the household. But that those commands were really aimed at him and him being a humble patron not at the people who were being served by him. But Sorry, I should have said that. That was just confusing. Uh, I do that with my brain sometimes. Okay. Um, so, in our lack of significance in our work, we've often taken all these, these, these paths, okay? One of the paths I've already explained to you is that we try to spiritualize our work. Well, my work is only important if I, you add in the blank of whatever you decided is spiritually good for your work. Again, the problem is you're only going to enjoy your work insofar as it's like a disciple-making machine. Well, this year I was able to study the Bible with someone, so it was a good year. And every other year between there where I wasn't, it was like a bad year. What? That's crazy. I don't think so. I don't think that's the way we ought to look at that. Another problem we have in terms of responding to the lack of significance in our work is we look for really easy metrics to try to explain significance. So, well, my job's significant because I make this amount of money. My job's significant because I only work this many hours. Blah, 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 blah. All of these easy kind of metrics that, uh, again, go back to the circumstance of our job. That we're trying to kind of make sense out of why we're in a, sp- in a place in our life where, um, you know, work is challenging to us. Well, if we can just sort of see the positive viewpoint here, we'll be good. That's not understanding the calling of your work. That's just positive human philosophy on life. Or see the silver lining and you'll be good. That's not going to last for very long. And if you carry that on to one job to the next, you're not going to be really living out your calling. You're going to be, you know, uh, muddling through it. You know? You're going to be kind of like, I'm just trying to look at the positives, you know, along the way. That's not what we've been called to do, even though that sounds really great. Um, so, uh, I don't want to want to talk about that because, you know, I don't think I need to. Um... Yeah. So, I want to get to this very, very last point because, you know, I'm running out of time, as always. Uh, The work that we do, no matter what field you're in and no matter what you're doing, is spiritual work. Now, certainly God has called us to higher responsibilities. And so if your goal in your job is only to do your job well and you pass up every opportunity to bless someone and to teach someone about God, then you're failing at your calling. You're, you're the you know, chicken pecking up the ground, doing what you do, but you're not failing to see the bigger part of the picture. But with that said, 
If you're only looking at the bigger picture and deciding that your job is only good insofar as you're accomplishing these high and extraordinary goals, you'll miss the fact that God has given us very specific work to do that's spiritual. I mean, he gave you know Adam and Eve gardening. I, gardening is the worst. I hate it. It's, I'm terrible at it. And thankfully, I find much more meaning and identity from other things I do rather than gardening. But we fail to see that that was really the deal. I mean, that's what they did. They were supposed to take care of the earth, take care of the world. So many of our jobs, guys, have to do with taking care of the world around us. And it doesn't matter if it's as simple as feeding people fast food that's bad for them. Okay? I'm sorry, but, you know, it's their choice. And some, who, who's to say that they only eat fast food? I mean, I got a Whataburger every now and again. I just need a meal quickly so I can work and do things quickly. Um, that's nothing wrong with that. Um, again, we go back to easy metrics, right? And particularly when you add into this whole kind of new age, like natural Denton way of looking at the world where, you know, we're all supposed to, like, drink pure stuff and, you know... <laughs> Um, make our own stuff and all that nonsense, which is such a foe. It's such a facade way of looking at the world. We tend to denigrate uh, you know, jobs that don't fit into those fields. That's not okay, because God has elevated our calling in any and every vocation that we're in. And so work itself is spiritual. Well, why is it spiritual? Number one, you're doing things that, important, that matter. I mean, guys, most of our economy today is a service economy. It used to be a manufacturing economy. Now, manufacturing paid a lot better, and that was good. But we have low-end service work for a lot of people today, but they're still serving people. By nature, we get the opportunity to serve people. I hated service jobs because I am not a very polite person when it comes to service. I remember one time in particular when I cussed someone out at the academy, customer service. I was 17, okay? And I'm surprised I didn't lose my job, but they came in one minute before the store closed. And they were asking all these questions. <laughs> and I am indignant when people do things that bother and annoy me uh, when it comes to like rules or standards. And I'm fine breaking myself, but when other people break them, it's punishment time. <laughs> um, and I just think back to that, you know? I mean, again, there's a million ways that I could rationalize that out. But my job was ultimately called customer service. And how many of us hate customer service? Yeah, because of me, people like me who call up and I'm like expecting people to do things immediately and to know everything. And geez, it's like the perfect field to work in today to practice self-denial, like to be forced into denying yourself. But a lot of jobs we have are service-related jobs. That's important. That's good. And just because you're doing service in a field that you don't immediately have incredible significance behind, like, you know, Hannah helping people with their cars that are broke down. Oh, big deal. <laughs> Sorry, you looked at me. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a huge deal. You're helping someone in a desperate moment. I mean, we don't have to come up with justifications and thinkings about this. What we have to do is ignore this this tendency in our culture and our society to explain away the significance of work. As Christians, we have great significance in the work that we do, whatever it is. And I think in particular, when you look at the history of monks and people who were supposed to be spiritual leaders, they found significance in the most mundane and trivial tasks. And that had nothing to do with the task itself. It had everything to do with understanding that God has called us to do great and small things alike. And that what's important isn't the task we're doing, it's the God that we're serving. And when you read scriptures like, do everything as if you, know, you, you do it for the Lord... 
That's the idea. That's the mentality that we have in our work. And it's very hard to keep in mind. I want to encourage you to do something that we did on Tuesday night that I thought was really encouraging. Write out a, a purpose statement for your job. Um, uh, is that how I presented it? I can't remember how I presented it. Just a, what is your calling at your job? I can't remember. What did I say? Yes, there we go. Spiritual purpose or spiritual significance of your job. And I really, again, want you to, to stay away from just the obvious relational attributes. Because I think a lot of us already understand that, okay, we should build relationships at our work. But particularly, what is the spiritual significance of your job? What are you doing, you getting to do, that plenty of other people don't? And, uh, and how do you kind of think about uh, that from that perspective? Guys, I know this is a really hard thing to think about. You don't understand how much the idea of work not being significant has seeped its way into our society. Through systemized work, through individual competition with others, through work in really practical and efficient ways, we've lost a sense of purpose and significance in our work. Uh, Karl Marx talked a lot about this and said that this was sort of coming at some point. Um, And here it is. And it has been here for like 30 or 40 years. But as Christians, this is a part of our life. And we can't... Uh, you know, just explain it away. If God's calling really does take every aspect of our lives, it certainly is going to talk about here. I would say another thing that makes our work spiritual is no matter what job you have, it's an awesome opportunity for self-learning, learning about who you are, and self-sacrifice. There's not a job out there that isn't going to challenge who you are in a variety of different areas. We tend to think about our job significance as being how we can serve others. But there's just as much significance in how the job itself changes who we are and how we think. Or exposes flaws in how we treat people. And how we view the world. All great opportunities for God to come in and work within us. And I think that's a huge one. No matter what job you have. Particularly if you have a terrible job. There's probably a reason why you think it's a terrible job. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of jobs that are... Uh, absolutely terrible, okay? But I think there are a lot fewer of them than many of us tend to, tend to think in terms of our own job. Okay? Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's all I want to say because I've run way over time. So we're going to take communion and uh, I want to give you a, a passage just to kind of read from. Or I'm going to read from it. It's uh, John 6. We're going to talk about this next week. Um, I've already lost it. If you're new here, uh, we do communion in a really communal way. Uh, Grant's been making um, bread for us, which has been pretty awesome, and I think some other people too, Ryan. And uh, we just take this as a family meal, uh, and so we're going to have some people around. You can dip the uh, big chunk of bread in the wine, not wine, uh, so we're like, yes, finally wine, um, in the grape juice, and then we'll take it together. I want to give you this passage that has to be like the best Jesus juke in all of the New Testament. Not just because it comes from Jesus himself. Um, But it's one that we ought to really think through and meditate on and I think make sense of because it's just great. Oh my goodness, it's so great. It's not in John 6, it's in John 4. I'm really struggling this morning on my scripture references. Uh, Yeah, John 4. So it's after the Samaritan woman. The apostles, of course, are very uh, worried about Jesus not eating. You know, they're kind of like his mom, I guess, in this situation. You know, like, has he eaten? He needs to eat. Oh, my goodness. Stop this hard work. Um, And so in uh, 31, thank you. Look at that. Uh, So, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about, right? And they're like, whoa, where did he get this? Another miracle. Could someone have brought him food? 
My food said Jesus is do the will of him who sent me in to finish his work. Which I can only imagine would effectively end that conversation. And then being like, what? Um, we have such a narrow view on what's spiritually satisfying. Um, worship experience, that one moment when we learn something about ourselves where we really feel like God was in it and was speaking to us. I think God created our world in a way that almost everything that we do is an opportunity to hear from Him and know Him. And when we limit His ability to do that, particularly in something that we do like 40 hours of our week, we're missing a huge part of who God is. And so I just encourage you and challenge you to think through, as a body of, uh, of uh, believers, you know, where is God working in my workplace? How does He want to change the way I think about what I'm doing? Um, to elevate that vocation that I have you know, with the calling that He's given me. Um, Jesus, wherever He went, He didn't just call people to follow Him as if that was the only path towards you know, uh, spiritual revelation. In fact, most people, what did He tell them? Stay where you are. Stay what you're doing. Whatever you're doing, do it and continue to do it. And I think that's really what we've got to remember in our jobs. We've got to be okay with staying where we are what we're, with what we're doing. If you can move up, you can move somewhere, great, that's good, that's so wonderful. But really being able to see God working in the current place that we're in. Lord God, thank you so much for giving us work to do. Thank you for teaching us uh, how to really live and take care of your world. I just pray that you would help us believe some of these truths about our calling. We have so many messages that have been given to us about work that run counter to the gospel message of our calling. And that you would break down the barriers and the obstacles. um, That you would help us be able to have really tough conversations with people and to challenge our views and to be challenged. uh, And that we would be a body of people that really do enjoy the work that we do. Not because it's great or good or because it has so many wonderful benefits, but because... We see our calling in our job, the higher calling that you've given us um, to really be your people uh, in, in the workplace with both our work and with the other people around us. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.